0: Good morning, Church. Today's Bible reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-11. to When I'm done reading, I would say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, Thanks be to God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-11 to Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, urges, charisma, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless world living, and they heap abuse on you. But they would have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, So that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body but live according to god in regard to the spirit the end of all things is near therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray above all love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins offer hospitality to one another without grumbling each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: All right, thank you very much for that reading, Ituno, and uh, welcome to City Church, especially if this is your first time joining us on our live stream. We're so happy to have you. We've been going through a series from the book of 1 Peter, and we're getting close to the end of that series. So I'm going to be preaching uh, from that same book um, as Ituno has read, and I just want us to pray before we continue. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we're in, but we thank you for the opportunity to continue to hear your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would encourage us, O God, from your eternal word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you be present in this meeting, in in our ears, in our hearts. Help us hear what God is saying and help me speak as one who is speaking of the oracles of the Lord. I ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. You know, when I was a child, I went for many oambes, and really, the highlight of the oambes wasn't just the spraying or the food or the drinking. It was really seeing my extended family. I had so many aunts, so many cousins, so many uncles, and that's really because my parents grew up in what you call an extended family. They weren't just going for the uh, the weddings of their blood brothers and sisters, but they grew up with. The other brothers and sisters, people that were called cousins, but they really referred to them as brothers. Why? Because they all grew up in this large household. You see, extended families, though we don't have so much of them now, they had a lot of advantages. For instance, if a member of the family died who um, was married, the children didn't have to worry about going to school because there was always somebody there to pick up the pieces. If they divorced, the same thing, there were other uncles and aunts that served as father figures for them. And it's the same thing when maybe somebody just gave birth to a new child. There was always somebody to help out with them, especially if they had to go back to work. Now, the challenge, though, with extended families was quite often they didn't allow you to express your individuality. You know, if I had to say my name as someone who grew up in an extended family, I would not say my name is Olufemi Oshunine, rather I would say my name is or Olufemi, because the family took precedence over the individual. But at the same time also, women were particularly marginalized in extended families. They usually had to take the back seat. Well, my parents' generation, uh, having grown up in that, were making a transition. They were making a transition because as urbanization came and as more and more people wanted to work and ex- um, for their dreams, they started to embrace a new kind of family. It was called the nuclear family. It was the nuclear family, in summary, it is two parents and two and a half children. Now, by two and a half children, I mean if you took two families, you have the parents and one of them will have two children, the other one would have three children. And what was the advantage of the nuclear family was, it was that you could now have more concentrated affection towards your children. You could spend a whole lot more on their education. You could allow them to develop themselves much more and to discover who they were individually. But this discovery of our individuality came at a price. You see, the family was very brittle. If there was a divorce in the family, all of a sudden you had this single parent who found it hard to be the other, uh, whether it's the, uh, the husband or the wife for the children, and it became very difficult to bring up children. Economically, it was also very difficult if someone died. Because they were not in extended families, they didn't have enough social connection to other people to help them pick up the pieces. And if you move from the extended family and to the nuclear family, the children that grew up under that nuclear family, a lot of them, what we'll call millennials now, born 1984 and after, up until 2000, a lot of them had grown up thinking that the world, because they grew up in nuclear families, they thought that the world revolved around them, that they could live out their dreams, they could chase any goal they wanted now they were achieving a a whole lot more. They were much more educated, you know, were able to get very good jobs. But actually because of that, a lot of them were getting married later. They had less and less social connection. And so if you ever wanted to summarize these three that I've just spoken about, you can even look at the forms of entertainment. In the extended family, what you would have is a group of grandchildren and all the aunts and uncles, they were all gathered around mama telling a story. When you get to the nuclear family, you had these four or five people just concentrated on the TV screen. And when you get down to the individual, that millennia, what do you have? I don't want to see the world, so I focus on my smart, uh, smartphone. I don't want to hear the world, and then I have my earphones in my ear. So while we have progressed in achieving more individually, we have become more disconnected socially. All of them have their advantages, but they also have their disadvantages. But now, in the t- in context of COVID-19, in context of suffering, as we are much more individualistic, we do need family. And Peter is saying here that as people have started to find alternative families in our day, and so people are uh, the concept of the chosen family, I didn't choose my blood family, but I can choose my other family, so tip. For instance, people who are Arsenal fans or Chelsea fans or Man United fans, they like to refer to themselves as a family. The, the club itself says it's a family of the staff, but also of the supporters. Some people form families around certain social interests. We are road runners or road warriors, or you know, they jog together. In many estates, in the estate I live in, for instance, we like to refer to ourselves as a family. These are chosen families. But Peter, in the text that we're going to look at, is going to say, you know what, the church should be that chosen family because we are not centered around just the things that we're interested in. We are centered around a chosen Savior. As 1 Peter 2.9 and 1.20 say, but you are a chosen people. He was, ch- but, And these chosen people are around a chosen Savior who was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for our sake. And so that's the way we titled this sermon, The Chosen Family. And we're going to see in that chosen family how the church should continue to come together in unity, but also operate as those who are chosen under the Savior Christ. And we're going to look at it in three headings. The first is leaving the other family. The second is describing the chosen family. And the third is joining the chosen family. Leaving the other family, describing the chosen family, and joining the chosen family. Let's take the first one. Now, as our um, social distancing and social restrictions have increased and increased, uh, most of us understand what Peter will be talking about here. You see, because we are... We're longing for something, aren't we? And we're longing not just to talk to each other. Phones help us do that. We're longing not just to see each other. Zoom helps us achieve that. We're longing to sing with each other. We're longing to hug each other. We're longing to, um, to, 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 to eat with each other. In other words, we want to feel something that we know, that we accept one another. We want to feel what we know exists, acceptance. And the problem is with, the, with what COVID-19 has brought about is that it is causing us to feel something that may not be true. This may not be something we know, but it's causing us to feel something that we dread. You know what that is? Rejection. I don't know how many of you have been rejected lately. Maybe you've experienced rejection by the rejection of a visa. Or maybe you've been sidelined in your workplace or you've been sidelined from a particular group that you love being part of. You weren't given information that others were privy to or from a special friends group. You weren't told a particular thing. It doesn't feel good. It hurts. And you see, a lot of Peter's readers had become new converts and they started to experience this rejection. You see, because to be part of a particular human group a group of human beings you have to conform to certain human standards once you fall short of those standards you will experience rejection now these Christians were living in a society and among friends that world was governed by ungodly human desires we are told in verse 2 right they were living they lived the rest of their lives earthly lives for evil human desires and so in other that led to them living a lifestyle of unbridled, sensual pleasure. You know what that is? It is right if it feels good. That led them down, as we can see in verse 3, they were living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and even idolatry. Now, they were part of that community, they enjoyed living in that community, but it was centered around this individualistic, sensual pleasure. Whereas these Christians now were called to live according to a new set of principles, it says in verse 2, under the will of God. And this led to two things that they experienced. First, the people were surprised, they were shocked. You too, it says, they were surprised that you don't join them in the reckless wild living in verse 4. Shock, but the next thing was anger. They heap abuses upon you. Some of us have experienced that. I know I experienced this. And quite often, what's in the middle of the shock and the anger is actual hurt. I remember when I became a Christian. Finally became a Christian in my final semester in the university. There are people I had rode with, wonderful people, people I love, people that have been good to me, people that we, you know, shared life with. But I felt that I really needed to have it right with God because the center of our relationship was not God. And I remember having a conversation. I started to pull back, you know, more and more. And I can never forget, you know, one of my friends, she came and told me, she said something like this. She said, Femi, are you saying that I am evil? First of all, people were shocked. You too. You, you, or all people felt me. Ah, ah. You used to be a ring leader in this thing. Two, are you saying that I'm evil too? And eventually, that leads to, for some of us, it's in a passive-aggressive sense. That's what we've experienced. For some of us, it's explicitly aggressive. Where people then shut you out. Who do you think you are? When did you become this good? And you see, that is part of what we dread. Some of us dread feeling this, going through this, haven't joined a community that loved us. Maybe some of us, for instance, that are watching here, maybe you are dealing and struggling with your sexuality. You see, you've come to a realization that you found out that I am not really attracted to the opposite sex. Actually, the people are mostly attracted to are people of the same sex. In this context of Lagos, Nigeria, you have been rejected by your family when you even attempted to tell them that. You know that you can't even talk about it openly because the society condemns that. They have rejected you. And you know that this is driven by the religious forces, both the churches and the mosques. There is no place for you to, hide. You, there is no place for you to join. Everybody is rejecting you until you found this group, this underground group of people who accepted you in your sexuality because they also were experiencing the same thing. You were able to join this group of homosexuals and you were able to even live out that sexual desire that you have always felt that has been banned by by the community, the society, and all of those things. You finally felt accepted for who you are. At the same time, you've always sort of believed in God and you've not been able to push it away. And now you are you're experiencing almost like a draw, a tug from God calling you. But the problem that you have is that when you read about what this God desires in the Bible, it is a conflict with what you are feeling right now. And you don't want to leave this community of people that have loved you so much. You're struggling with the hurt that you would feel if they rejected you. Now, let me say something to you. If you are that kind of person, don't define yourself by your sexuality. Because you may be saying, Femi, are you trying to tell me now that I have to repudiate these people? I have to leave these people? They will look at me and say, so you who has lived this lifestyle, you who has actually brought other people into this, now you want to repudiate this lifestyle? I will not be able to deal with this. Most especially because you feel that it is so much part of your identity. You see, the thing about this is that both those who rejected you and those who have accepted you are working from the same framework. They've both defined you by your sexuality. One has defined you by your sexuality and they rejected you and hated you because of that. The other has defined you by your sexuality and has accepted you because of that. Whereas God says, I love you not because of your sexuality. I love you because I created you in my image. You are more than your sexuality and your feelings. Love you so much that I sent my son to die for you. But is there a reason also to give a reason, a reasonable reason to think about why you should actually leave that and go under the will of God? Yes. And we find that particularly in verses 5 to 6. In verse 5 where he says that they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Most of us are scared about judgment by human standards. But here he's saying that there is another judgment by the divine standard. Choose which one you think you should follow. Now, some of us would then say, you see, this is why I don't like Christianity. This is why I don't like. You're not talking about an eternal judgment. I am actually a good thinking person. I'm a free thinking person. And I believe that you should be tolerant. All this talk about universal, eternal judgment is a problem. Can I say something to you? If you reject the concept of eternal judgment, and I would say the reality of eternal judgment, right? If you reject it on the basis of being tolerant, that we should just accept all people, That is a problem because you then have to reject every kind of judgment based on every kind of standard, including your tolerance standard. You see, because you are making judgments, you are making judgments between those who are tolerant and those who are not uh, intolerant as you perceive it. In other words, there is no way we cannot make Judgment. Making judgment is weaved into the fabric of what it means to be human and to live in a human society. And that exists because there is a universal judgment. There is an eternal judgment. Whilst human judgment is limited and is temporal, God's judgment is universal and eternal. Don't be on the wrong side of his judgment. But here's how he judges, and in verse six it can be a bit complicated. I'm going to put a chart, really, we we'll put a chart on the screen to explain uh, between verse five and verse six. Verse five is really talking about the judgment of those who are not Christians, and verse six is talking about the judgment of those who believed, even though they may have been dead. The gospel was preached to them, and they accepted. Now notice that he's talking about two people, the Christian and the non-Christian. In the lifestyle, the Christian lives under the will of God. But the non-Christian the lifestyle lives under ungodly human desires. And when you examine the judgments, the different judgments, humanity's judgment of the Christian is that when judged in the body, they were rejected by humans. Judged in the body is the life you live now. And so the temporal judgment is the human judgment. They were judged in the body. For non-Christians, they are approved and accepted by humans. Because if you are like them, they would accept you. But then he says that there is another judgment. Under the divine judgment, the Christian, though may have been judged according to human standards in the body, is made alive in the spirit in the final judgment by God. Whereas the non-Christian is the one that will give account. Even though they may have been accepted in the body, when judged by God eternally, they will have to give account. Who should you serve? Who should you think about? And God is saying here in verse 1, and you will take verse 1 and chapter 3, verse 18, he's saying that therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. In other words, we should take the judgment that Christ took and live as Christ lived. And for Christ, as I said, we take three eighteen. Uh, three eighteen. You notice that Christ, in the body, he suffered, and he experienced death. He suffered and was put to death in the body. But now he was. But after that, he was made alive in the spirit. In other words, he's saying. Even though Christ suffered according to human judgment, Christ thought about the eternal judgment. Don't define yourself by your sin. Don't define yourself by sexuality. Don't define yourself by all the other things that humanity defines themselves by, God created in his image. But also think, whose judgment will I rather have? Humanity's judgment and approval right now that is temporal, or God's approval, for all eternity. That leads me to my second point. Describing the chosen family. Now, you see, God isn't just going to leave you with the sense of, well, I've made the right decision, and now let me just wait. No, God wants to then describe for you the kind of family that you should join. How do I know that? Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, The end of all things is near, therefore the reason i know that is because of that word therefore because when you see the end of all things is near some of us are thinking with all the covid-19 that is going uh, on is this the end of the world uh, maybe we should just be waiting for jesus to come what does peter do he does the, the end of the end of all the phrase the end of all things is near is not meant to lead to wait for the judgment actually the therefore says makes you know that the end of all things is near. Therefore, I want you to experience a new family life in light of the fact that the end of all things is near. In other words, you are not saved to wait. You are saved to belong because of the therefore. Look at what it says there. Well, maybe I should first address something. You're saying at the end of all things. Now, Peter is not necessarily talking about knowing that Christ was going to return in his time. He knew that, he couldn't know that. Why? Because Matthew 24 verse 36 tells us something different. But about the day or the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. So Peter couldn't have known that. He wasn't talking about the end of all things is near in that I know that Christ is coming. There was another way Peter talked about the last days. And this was in Acts chapter 2, when Jesus was returning to heaven, he said, I'm going to send another like me, that is the Holy Spirit. And so when the Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and the people started to speak in tongues, Peter then quotes, a prophet called Joel and said, and he interpreted the outpouring of the Spirit in this way. He said, this is what was spoken by prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Now, do you know what then that led to? The pouring out of the Spirit. By the time you read Acts chapter 2, verse 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, what do you see? You see a new family. People that were learning under the apostles' teaching. People that were eating together. People that were praying together. People that were... Communion together. In other words, the last days and the outpouring of the Spirit led to the birthing of the church. And Peter is saying, we are already in these last days. Of course, we are approaching more and more to the end of the last days, but on account of the fact that we are in the last days, join and experience the family that was created because the last days have started. Do we understand? Now, he goes ahead to describe that family for us in the following verses. And what he's saying is that unlike the previous family that you lived in in your past times, which was a family that was centered around self-indulgence and self-expression, this new family of the last days is not self-centered. This new family is selfless and it is built around two things, your attitude towards God and your attitude towards others your attitude towards god clear thinking your attitude towards others deep loving clear thinking deep loving let's take those two clear thinking look at verse 7 again the end of all things is near therefore be alert and of sober be alert and of sober mind be alert and of sober mind those two things are basic, using two things to say the same thing which is i want you to be clear Minded. I want you to be clear-minded. And then you think, okay, if he wants us to be clear-minded, what does he want us to be? What should that lead to? Now, the answer is very, very surprising because Peter tells you what you should lead to. He says, so that you may pray. So that you may pray consistently and fervently. Now, that seems strange, but I think if we think deeply about this, you'll see that it's aimed at two people. And uh, the first one is the critic. The second one is the fearful. The critic and the fearful. Let's take the critic. You know, one of the saddest things I've experienced is that the Christians who are most engaged theologically are the Christians that are the least prayerful. And the reason this happens is that the goal of our thinking, the goal of thinking, of, of Christian reading, of engaging a lot of theology, the goal of our thinking quite often, even though it is not said, is our glory. And what do I mean by that? The more I read, the more I know things, I will be, the goal will be to be thought of as a thoughtful Christian, an intellectual Christian. And you see, once you've made that standard, how do you know that you've really reached that place? How do you know that you are ascending and and going higher and higher? You need to compare yourself with others. And so all of a sudden, you are now looking at those Christians that just pray fervently. You know, those CAC Christians or those MFM Christians. They are fanatics. They are mindless. They don't know any theology. And how do you know that? Because you compare yourself, this thinking Christian, to them. And so you spend so much of your time criticizing every single thing that they do. You criticize them in your mind. You go on social media and criticize them. When you gather with your friends, you're always criticizing, criticizing, criticizing. Anytime I meet a Christian that I know criticizes and criticizes, I know that you are not praying. You are not praying consistently. And if you are praying consistently, then you are not praying fervently. Because a clear-thinking, praying Christian does not go around looking for who to criticize over and over again. He doesn't continue to monitor the mishaps of the people that he's not like. You know what a clear-thinking, passionate, praying Christian does? He monitors for every single uh, progress in those people. Why? Because the passionate and powerful prayers of the righteous avails much. It is effective, as James 5 verse 10. Uh, Sixteen tells us, if we are thinking clearly, we will be praying more. The second is the fearful one. Don't forget if you are not thinking clearly, you are not praying consistently and fervently. A thoughtful Christian among us in our church recently, I had the conversation with her she was she was struggling in thinking with her prayer life in light of the spread of COVID-19. She told me that she had read so many harrowing stories. She had been reading harrowing stories of people dying and all the different things. She was going on and on and on. At one point, she just says, why doesn't he end it all? He being God. You see, her prayer struggles were because she had not been thinking clearly. Because you see, she, she, in engaging the news consistently, consistently and reading all those stories, she was reading truths, but she was actually just engaging with one aspect of reality, the bad news. And so when she thought of all this bad news going on in just about COVID-19, she was thinking if there's an all-powerful God, and all-good God, why doesn't he end it all? The problem there was that she was only seeing one aspect of reality. Her reality was not comprehensive. If she had gone to the Bible, she would see that God is not only just all-powerful and all-good, he's all-knowing. Why do you think that because we cannot discern, we cannot immediately see how he can use the things that are going on for good, we ultimately think we want to write him off. And once we start to question him, you know what happens? We cannot pray again. And once we don't pray, we do not see comprehensive reality. We are not in touch with the one who sees comprehensive reality and we start becoming fearful. Whereas clear, comprehensive thinking, as we are informed by the true God, as we see in the Bible, it will not stop us from admitting that things are bad. But once we see that things are bad, when we know that there's only little that we can do, what do we do? We go to the one that can do all things. Clear thinking always leads to consistent and fervent prayers. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Now, the second thing is deep loving. Deep loving, you see in verse 8, it says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, your love is going to be tested, not just your love with your mouth, but your deep love. And he says this love is a love that covers a multitude of sins. It's not saying that it pays for sins. Our, our love cannot pay for somebody else's sins. Neither is it saying that it should cover up sins. We should never do that in the church. What it's saying is that it stops the community from being destroyed through spiraling sinful re- uh, 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 um, retribution. You remember? Uh, two sermons ago, we spoke about not repaying evil with evil because if you keep paying evil with evil, this one returns his own evil, that one returns their own evil, eventually there will be more and more division, the community will be destroyed. And so what he's saying is that If somebody gives evil and the other person pays with love, that love stops that sin from achieving, or that evil from achieving its purpose to destroy the community. Love covers a multitude of sins. That is the nature. Now, to test the genuineness of this nature is going to be expressed in material and non-material means. Material means through hospitality. Non-material means through the right use of the gifts. So let's take the hospitality you see in verse 9. It says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is the display of a welcoming attitude and actions despite the difficulty that it causes to us. So bring people in your homes. I'm not saying now, not in COVID-19, but here's an example. That you bring people to your homes, even though those people don't have the same home manners that you grew up with. Even though you like everybody to remove their shoes, when they come into your house, but these people have not, and so you're looking at them. I'm not going to invite this one again. Hospitality always costs us materially. Uh, even in this COVID-19 situation, as we've been giving towards the Jubilee Fund, we are helping our brothers and sisters in church in need. That is how this community functions. Welcoming in a way that costs you materially. But this deep loving will continue to only be sustainable if it will only be sustainable if we do not grumble. Because even if you do it the first time, if you grumble after, most likely you won't do it a second time. If you did it a second time, you won't do it a third time, definitely. Now, the the second thing is the usage of the gifts. In verse, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 1, in verse 6 of chapter 1, we are told that the, the people were going through um, uh, all kinds of trials, it di- various forms of trials. And here, we are shown that God gives grace in its various forms. In verse 10, see, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And those various forms are put into two categories. Word gifts, serving gifts. Word gifts, serving gifts. Word gifts are things like preaching, teaching, prophecy, counseling, and exhortation. And then, serving gifts are so numerous. Helping, helps. Mercy, generosity, leadership, media, operations, or administration. Now the key here is that when you use those gifts, if it is used in a self-centered way, the goal is always self-attraction and self-promotion so that people will know that you're someone. And this is what the Corinthian church was dealing with in 1 Corinthians 14. But really, the true use of the gifts is to enable, is to enable, is for the enablement of the gift of, of, uh, the good of others, but also for the glory of God, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and power forever and ever. Not for self-use, the use of, uh, not for self-good, for the good of others, but for the God's glory. Why is it for God's glory? Because verse 10, it is God's grace. Verse 11, it is God's word. Verse 11 again, it is God's strength. You are never meant to be the star of the show. Its source is God. Its beneficiary is God's family. Is this the kind of love that you have for your family? City Church, in a time of uncertainty and great suffering, we must grow into a praying, hospitable, encouraging, generous, and serving family. This is the kind of family that those who are rejected are looking for. Will you embrace them? That brings me to my third point. So my third point, joining the chosen family. So can I ask you, join this family. I'm asking you. In fact, no, I'm not asking you. I am begging you. Join this family. But the moment I say that, some of us are already thinking, I know what you are saying in your mind. You know what? As you've described this family, this family is good. In fact, no, this family is great. It is morally great. And that's the problem. I am not. There's no way I can live up to this standard. My sin would always be made obvious. And so I am not qualified. I can see how it is good For people like you who are already good, but not for people like me who are bad. And to which I am saying to you that you are not thinking clearly. That is such a mistake. Because this is not the way any of us join the family. If we join the family like this, all of us will be guilty by the time he returns to judge the living and the dead. Just think of an adopted child. An adopted child does not join their new family because they already behaved like them. They join their new family so that they can learn to be like them. The way they joined the new family was because the family lovingly accepted them first. And it is that loving acceptance that eventually starts to transform that child over a period of time to start behaving like the family members. You don't join this family to stop sinning. You join this family to increasingly, you don't join, sorry, say that again. You don't join this family because you stop sinning. You join this family to stop increasingly sinning and to start glorifying God and to start loving deeply. Remember, how does this family run? God says that this family, his family, runs by deep love for each other. The kind of love that does what? It covers. It covers a multitude of sins. Why does God say run? Operate by the love that covers a multitude of sins. You know why? Because this is exactly how God accepts us. God's love for us is the love that covers and pays for the multitude of our sins. At this point, I have to bring in the prophets to help me because I can't do it on my own. Look at what Micah says about this God and what he does for our sins. In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, he says, who is a God like you that pardon sins? You will not be angry forever. But you know what you will do? You will take my sins and then you will tread upon them under your foot. You will cast my iniquities into the depths of the sea that is how you join this family. Isaiah in Isaiah 44 verse 22 he will put it in another way. he said, you know what he will sweep away your offenses like a cloud. he will sweep away your sins like the morning mist. therefore return to me for I have redeemed you. That is the kind of love that enables you to join this family. come. And you say, how can he do that? Why does he do that? How does he do that? You're asking that question and it is one word. And I'll say it three times. Jesus, 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 that is how. It says here that he suffered in his body. He suffered in his body. Why? For you. Jesus was judged for your sins. So that when he comes to judge the living and the dead, he will look at you and he will say, welcome into my family forever. You may say, my sin is great but God's love is greater still. You may say, my sin is deep, but God's love is deeper still. You may say, I will always be rejected, but God's love says, I would always accept you. You may say, I will always be, I will be judged and condemned, but God says, you are alive and free. Why? Because of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So what are you waiting for? Come join. For his love that he has paid for covers a multitude of sins. And you say, how then will I live my life? Don't forget the Jesus that suffered in the body, the Jesus that died in the body was made alive in the spirit. And so now because of that, if you join, he gives you a new spirit. He gives you new affections so that you can live for him. And he grows that affection. He grows it as you join his family. For those of us who are already in healthy churches, also in city church, in a time of great suffering, in a time of uncertainty, you're not called to be alone. And we are not called to create a community, a family that enables us to just dwell alone. No, what are we called to do? We are called to join this family of choice. We are called to be this family of choice that thinks clearly and loves deeply. Because the multitude of our sins was covered in Jesus. Let us pray.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.